Okay, children. Last night I have a little bit of a longer one, but I think you're capable of saying it. I mean, any children here tonight? Can you say it? You've been sick, so you aren't here, but did you learn it anyway? You didn't. Well, I'm going to have to go up to some older people. Who knows? Who knows our little proverb? Nobody? Philip, go ahead, please. Very good. We are free to make our choices, but we are not free from the consequences of those choices. All through Scripture, we have examples of that. And people today, and I've done it, thought that somehow the pleasure derived from this thing I wanted to do would outweigh the consequences, but it doesn't. Okay, for Sunday morning. Tomorrow night, I'm going to uh, be maxed out on time. So for Sunday morning, I want you to learn this one. Y'all listen. This one's easy. A lie is still a lie, even if everyone believes it. And the truth is still the truth if no one believes it. Okay? Maybe there's some mamas wrote that stuff down. A lie is still a lie even if everyone believes it. And the truth is still the truth if no one believes it. So remember that. You're Arthur, right? I've seen you for a while. Uh, you'll be able to picture my my sermon tonight. <clears throat> what I've titled, what I want to share about is called the cyanide flats. Now, the cyanide flats don't mean much to you now. But when I get done, I hope you understand what I'm talking about. And so to give a bit of a background, I need to explain some things to you. My wife, and by the way, I'm just so honored that Kenny and Rachel Bang brought my wife tonight, and um, it's real special to have her, and so thank you again. Grace grew up in Red Lake, Ontario. Most of you older people know where that is, but to you younger people, you don't have a clue. But basically, it's 300 miles north of... International Falls, Minnesota, and so I'll go on from there. So there's a whole vast area of farmland, some of the best farmland in the world in southern Ontario. And then it <clears throat> is this rocky, lakey, strewn area until you get to the about the Manitoba border. And then it's wide open prairie again until you get to the Alberta-British Columbia border. That rocky, full-of-lake area of northwestern Ontario is called the Canadian Shield. And it's rugged lakes and forests and outcroppings of bedrock and sheer rock cliffs. It's really rugged. It's not mountainous, really. It's just rugged. But there's pockets of fertile soil in some of those places. About 500 miles north 
of the Kitchener-Waterloo area along the Quebec border is an area called New Liskard. And it's beautiful dairies and cattle there. If you go north from there, another couple hundred miles, you get to Cochrane, Ontario. Again, a few dairies and some cattle. But it's not for the faint of heart. It's cold there. and The winters are long and the summers are short. And then from Cochrane, you turn west and head towards Manitoba, you'll get to Dryden, Ontario, where Northern Youth Programs is. And in Dryden, the Swiss have settled in there, and there's pockets of fertile land, and they grow barley to feed for their silage. There's harvestor silos there, and the Swiss know how it's like to live in cold climates, and they do well there. Yes, Mennonite and Anabaptist people have settled into all those places, and someone has said that Mennonites are always looking for good farmland. And I used to tease my dad and Uncle Howard Brubaker that they sure can't accuse them of that when they moved to Bamberg County, South Carolina. It's a lot of beach sand, but it's home. The barbecue's pretty good. Compared to other regions where people have settled, where farming thrives in western Canada, Red Lake is not really all that far north. But it's, like I said, 300 miles north of International Falls, Minnesota. But the Arctic air masses come down to Hudson Bay and dump right on that place. And it is cold. And very cold. And the lake where Grace and I lived often was you could walk on water seven months of the year and you didn't have to be Jesus. And the place was cold all year. Any time of the year, you could dig down until you hit permafrost. It thawed for a while, but then you'd get down to where there was ice crystals. But we lived on north of Red Lake, Ontario. Until the early 1920s, only First Nations people or native People lived in that area, and they were a nomadic people of hunters, trappers, and fishermen, and they grew very little food. The flour and lard and other staples that they got came in by canoe or dog teams, and it was very slow and very hard work. But in 1925, prospectors pushed north by dog team and early open cockpit airplanes and to what is now called Red Lake, Ontario. Gold was discovered there. And when the news of that discovery was printed in the newspaper in the big cities down Toronto and Winnipeg and Chicago, what do you think happened? That first year, 5,000 people swarmed into that rugged and desolate area. There was over 18,000 claims made with the claim office and the mining office in Kenora, Ontario that first year. And unlike the placer gold of the Klondike of California or the gold rushes in Alaska and places like that, Red Lake has what is known as load gold. And load gold is not nuggets. It's melted through the rocks. And you have to extract that gold out of the rock. It's in a geological formation and oftentimes quartz or kind of a limestone granite type stone. As is always the case, a few went big but most went broke. 
And there was a lot of get-rich-quick prospectors that never made it. There have been two significant gold rushes in Red Lake since the early 1920s. There was another one in 1944 during the Second World War. And a vein of gold was discovered that produced up to nine ounces per ton of rock. And so what is an ounce of gold worth? Anybody know? I don't know. I don't have any. $300? I'm not sure. Really? Okay. And so a ton of rock is not a lot of rocks, about two or three wheelbarrow loads. They could get nine ounces of gold out of that. The, that mine still exists today. And, is a, um, and in the 1990s, there was a new mine built in Red Lake by Gold Corp. And as of last year, they have gotten over 30 million ounces of gold out of there. So you don't need to get your phone out and do the calculations. 30 million ounces equals... 9,375 tons. It's a lot of gold. High quality gold. It's the richest ore in Canada and perhaps in all the world. That mine in Red Lake is <clears throat> 8,200 feet deep or 1.5 miles deep. It's so deep that they have to pump cold air down the shaft to keep the miners from getting hot. They're getting close to the center of the earth. Not real close, but it's hot down there. And so <clears throat> that's what a chunk of ore looks like that comes out of the Red Lake Mine. Now, you can't see it very good. Now, I was going to pass these papers around. But uh, some, I've heard miners say that they got into ore that would actually bend, it wouldn't break. There was that much gold in it. Well, the actual extraction and refining process of gold is not real simple. In biblical times, we talk about gold. and God told the children of Israel, when you get to Canaan, there's gold in those rocks and there's copper in those rocks. Well, how did they get it out? They got their rocks out and they beat them with a sledgehammer until they were fine gravels. And then they would heat it up and melt the gold out of those gravels. That's all they knew back then. But 1 Peter 1.7 says, Those have come so that your faith of greater value than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proven genuine and may be the result of praise, glory, and honor. When Jesus is revealed, your faith is worth more than gold. So I don't know how many ounces of faith you have versus this 30 million ounces of gold that they've dug out of the ground in Red Lake. But it's precious, more precious than gold. In 1817, there was a Scottish man named John MacArthur. John Stuart MacArthur, not John MacArthur from California that teaches Calvinism. This guy was into figuring out how to get gold extracted from the ore. He found that a process that he could extract 90%, 96% of the gold out of the ore by soaking it in cyanide. 
Cyanide would melt all the stone and rock away, but it doesn't melt gold. And so since the late 1890s, this process has become the, what we call the gold standard for extraction of gold out of ore, and it's been used in the United States and Canada. Now, cyanide comes in several formulations, and each particular formulation has its own use and purpose for the end product. All of them are very toxic, very poisonous, but not carcinogenic. Now, when you fly over the north, you'll see gold mines, abandoned gold mines, and some good gold mines. And so where there was a mining town, especially those that were close to a body of water, they would use this cyanide solution to rinse through the ore and let it all go back into a stream or into a lake. And the gold would be left and the sand and gravel part would go on out. Now, uh, because of environmental concerns, they build these uh, impervious retaining ponds and basins to put their cyanide in so it doesn't get into the environment. And so as you fly across the north and you see these bare spots, you know, it's an environmental hazard. It's, it's too bad. They didn't know better. But it's still there today. So now let me tell you about the cyanide flats. Red Lake, Ontario is 100 miles north of the Trans-Canada. The road runs from the east coast of Canada all the way to British Columbia. Well, you turn north and you go 100 miles. And as you come into a town, there's a nice little town. It's a mining town and a tourist town with a seaplane base and an airport. And one of the big things there is two things, gold. The other thing is tourism, flying, hunting, and fishing. But when I first came there, I noticed on my way into town, it looks like a beach there. Nice, pristine blue lake, big sandy area with no vegetation on it. And all it needed was some palm trees. And I was way too far north for palm trees, but it looked like it, it would do if they put up some fake ones. Well, you see what happened. That part of that little lake there, it's not actually attached to Red Lake. It just... Red Lake proper, it's just a little lake off to the side of town. And in the 1920s to the 1940s, there was a mine underneath the ground where Grace's house was, where she grew up, and they dumped their tailings out in a stream, and it rolled around into this little lake, and it made it sterile. And so by the time I showed up there, Red Lake's a little town. I'll tell you, it's about the size of Bridgewater, maybe, but it's the end of the road. Nothing beyond there except logging roads and tourist camps and things like that. And so by the time I got there, a hundred years later, well, it wasn't a hundred years back then, but now it's been about a hundred years. We were recently there. The shoreline of that lake is nice spruce trees and the water's blue, except for the one end where the tailings run in. It still looks like a sand beach. Remember that art? Coming into Red Lake on the left. Well, <clears throat> Grace and her siblings swam there. And that's why it's called the Sinai Flats. It's this flat 
piece of beach. And it grows nothing because of the cyanide they dumped in there. It's a forever chemical. It don't go away. Sort of. Let me explain. In my research, I found out that it is very toxic to drink, but it doesn't cause cancer. Now, Grace had a little sister that died at age 16 from a very aggressive form of bone cancer. But statistically, she didn't get cancer from swimming in at the Cyanide Flats. Grace looks healthy and robust. She swam there, too. Why did your parents let you swim there? Where are you at? They, they were just poor missionaries. They didn't have a pool. Okay. The water in the lake at the Cyanide Flats is not pure and pristine looking for no reason. There is no life in them. At least that's what we were told. No moss, no algae, no leeches, no minnows. So no food chain, and of course, there's no big fish. However, two of the other BS guys there, Steve Stolzfus from Kentucky and Dan Kurtz from Eastern Shore, Maryland, and I decided to see if the, maybe after 50 years that something may have decided to live there where there was little or no competition. So we borrowed a boat and took a fishing rod with a big red and white spoon and we launched our boat out into that lake, and I started trolling, and Steve throwed out his lure, and we were just cruising there real slow. And After a while, I heard Steve say, hey, you better back up. I got a snag. He's tush, you know. Hey, I got a snag. By the time I started to reverse the boat up, and he noticed that his pole was moving really slowly. And so he figured, well, either he had the Loch Ness Monster or a big snapping turtle or something. But you know, after about 30 minutes, he brought up a huge northern pike. It was almost 40 inches long. It was a real wall hanger. And I don't remember if Steve mounted it. He probably, he didn't make $25 a month back then. I doubt if, but I know we didn't eat it because it was full of cyanide and it would kill you, we thought. I want to make some parallels to your spiritual life. What do you feed on? What do you drink on? The scriptures have a lot to teach us about living water. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 and 5, it talks about warning about false teachers. I'm going to read those verses. I urged you when I went to Macedonia, Stay there in Ephesus so you may command certain men not to teach doctrines any longer, false doctrines, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this common command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some of you have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good for one who uses it properly. And we know that the law was not made for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and the rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious. 
For those who kill their fathers and mothers or murderers or adulterers and perverts or slave traders, liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to us. Someone has said that no one gives advice with more authority and more enthusiasm than the uninformed. And I think that's true. You can notice oftentimes that these people that are promoting false doctrine are really on to, I mean, they'll blast you down. No one gives advice with more authority and enthusiasm than the uninformed. And so I'm pleading with you to study your scripture, study your lesson, to speak from the truth of the gospel and not what you heard here or this podcast or, or that book or I'm just warning you. It's been an old age problem of self-serving and those wanting to enlighten the faithful with some new way of teaching, thus contaminating the purity of the gospel. And so it may come through your community. It may come through our community. But there are always those who fall for it. Don't be one of those people. You know, we've always been a little bit, had our antennas tuned towards Calvinism. Well, now this Calvinism like or Protestantism, it sounds a little better. It's still cyanide-laced water. I don't care how they serve it. The word of God is referred to always as pure and living water. And we get to that story in a minute. But beware of those who will gladly serve you a clear, clear looking glass of water with a stout dose of cyanide and false doctrine. You know, in the opening sentences of the verses that I just read from 1 Timothy, he talks about the glorious gospel of the blessed God. And Paul is reminding Timothy that the gospel is really the truth, the only truth. And it is not only a way of thinking, but it is a way of living. And it involves both doctrine and practice. You can have good doctrine and sorry practice. But that's not good enough. Some people have reasonable practice, but they have no doctrine. They have no reason. It's just a cultural thing. One of the things that Paul mentions is that scriptures are profitable for doctrine and teaching. Good doctrine is so important. It determines how we think and view the issues of life. That is critical. Because if you do not think correctly, you will not live correctly. And what we believe will determine how we conduct ourselves toward God and others. Now, part of the problem is this insatiable appetite for the new and the different. There's always going to be a following of loyal obedience for teachers who develop clever variations of the gospel. But the bottom line should always be godly edification or not getting a, a following after somebody who is feeding you a little bit of cyanide along with your pure doctrine of the word. Bad doctrine 
almost always leads to sloppy living. And we get comfortable with it. And I mentioned Protestantism and Calvinism, just to name a few, will convince you of a false false assurance of your eternal destiny. And I want to explain. How many of you remember Jim Jones? Okay, a couple of you, about five of us here. Jim Jones was a Methodist preacher who started preaching in a predominantly African-Americans in part of uh, California. And eventually was ordained in the Assemblies of God Church, a mainline Pentecostal denomination, but then he soon morphed into a cult leader, faith healer, and a, and a man where people would worship him as a man. He became very active in the local Communist Party and idolized Adolf Hitler. Well, the U.S. government got wind of this guy and his propensity to do bizarre things and his love for Hitler and Sometimes parents would be concerned about their children going to his church and following him. He started this cult, and people was just really taking him. Evidently, had a very dynamic personality, and parents would go to the FBI. I can't find my children, and here he's over here with this guy. Well, when Jim Jones figured out that the U.S. government was swooping in to check out his ministry, he just took all of them and vanished and went to the northeast coast of South America, Guyana. Well, what do you do when a man takes off with a lot of teenagers and married couples and children and just disappears? What's the government's responsibility to their citizens? Well, there was a U.S. senator from the state of California at the time flew to the compound there in Guyana and landed and got somebody to escort him and his entourage back to Jim Jones's compound there. And Jim Jones had been practicing with his, um, not students, but congregants or whatever that he'd hoodwinked and daring them to drink this and teaching them strict loyalty to him. He would practice. One day, when Jim Jones heard that this senator had landed and was coming his way to investigate them, he mixed cyanide into a purple drink. It wasn't actually Kool-Aid by brand. And he ordered all the parents to give it to their children. And then the parents were to drink it. And then Mr. Jones had his girlfriend shoot him. And then she shot herself. And when the senator... Oh, I'm ahead of myself. He came and investigated, and they shot him. And then when the the, uh, the feds come down from California to find out why the senator from California was mar- murdered, he asked his congregants to commit suicide. And they were loyal. That day, 918 souls died 
304 of them children. Almost a thousand people believed that man. How did he do it? And so we think that that just couldn't happen. Well, it did. Some of us remember when that happened. Well, the Kool-Aid people, I don't know who owns Kool-Aid, Nabisco or General Mills or somebody, has put on a publicity campaign to let everybody know that it was not Kool-Aid, but you've heard the expression, he drank the Kool-Aid. That's where that comes from. And so the Kool-Aid people don't care for that, but it does sound kind of reasonable. Revelation 20, verse 12 And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up their dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. And he said unto me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give a drink without cost from the spring of water of life. And he who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, and those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. That sounds harsh, but we're without excuse. All of us has had the opportunity to drink the pure word, the pure water of the word without the cyanide. There's not even any purple Kool-Aid in there. I want to explain. On the farm that I grew up over there in the bank church community where Samuel Gehring lives is a spring in the woods by one of our fields. And every spring and every fall, Dad, you know, the good farmer that he was, it was before no-till, and we had to go out there and pick rocks. And rocks just grew out there. You know, we'd pick them up, and the next year there'd be more. And they just kept coming up from somewhere. But we'd get hot and thirsty. We'd go over in the woods, and then by the bottom of this big tree in this mossy area, we'd lay down on that moss, and the water bubbled up out of the ground. We drink cold, clear water. And I called Samuel recently, and he said it's still there. Just like Revelation 21.6, I think that that bubbling stream over at Samuel Gehrings is so picturesque of that spring of living water that I just read about. Not even a hint of cyanide. No false or erroneous teaching in that spring. Now, over there on Samuel's farm, if you go there, and he's got this giant round concrete pit where he stores the muck and waste from his dairy. 
And I'm sure that if you ask him, if you really wanted to, that he'd give you the privilege to go over there and get a drink out of there, out of that big reservoir. But me? I know where that fresh living water is bubbling up in the ground over the woods. I'm going there. You can go for that big pit if you want. Why do so many people feel attracted to drink out of the lagoon when there's bubbling living water right over here by this tree? Beware of books, podcasts, video clips, or publications written by those whose faith and practice and application is weak at best or is obviously not applying the whole truth to the scripture. Remember, we are never what? More scripture. Scriptural, spiritual than we are scriptural. <clears throat> it is a grave and serious responsibility for those of us who are given the responsibility of teaching to neglect about maintaining the purity of the gospel. That's not just for church leaders, but for fathers and mothers. As you teach and train your children to grow up to be the faithful in their generation, pillars of the church. 1 Corinthians 9, 16, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. I'm going to deviate here, but to me the application is the same. Cyanide in the Anabaptist movie culture. You know, a guy can choose to look at pornography and have thoughts and emotions awakened that were meant not to be aroused until on the outside of marriage. Sad to say, some do it. A young lady can just as easily turn to romance novels and movies and music, etc., and can be found inst- that can be found instantly on YouTube or online. To a woman, this is pornography, both visual and emotional. It fills her hearts with thoughts and desires and longings that cannot be fulfilled in a godly way. It sets expectations in her heart for relationships that can never be that perfect. And she can easily feed her emotions or desires by watching a couple enjoy each other, being intimate, feeling cherished, even though that couple is 100% play-acting. This only sows discontent and awakens desires within a girl before God opens that door. And so I ask you, is it okay for your mama to go to work making Christian movies and schlecking? You don't know what that means? I don't even know Dutch. It means to lick and hugging up on some dude that is not her husband. Then come home, cook supper, help the children with their homework, and then go off to bed with your dad. Somehow, I have a problem with that. Romans 1.32 Although they know God's righteous decree, and that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And so when you're watching a movie or reading a book about stuff that God does not approve, you're putting your approval on it. Be careful. 
God has given us all a healthy imagination. We must take every thought captive to Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, 4. The world today has sexualized everything and it's only getting worse. And as God's people today, we must guard our eyes and our ears and our hearts almost everywhere we go. It's the saddest when we have to guard them in our own church functions. And I don't think that you do that here, but you know, you go to a lot of Christian church and the people are immodest and they're conducting themselves in unwholesome ways and it's just not a good light or a good witness to the world. In 2022, last year, or even this year, it is almost impossible to find media that does not involve profanity, immorality, sensuality, sexuality, or violence. To top it off, most of the sexuality that is in movies isn't between husband and wife. I mentioned that above. Movies are so destructive to a mind that desires to be content, selfless, righteous, and pure. So why would we want to bring immorality and immodesty that is that we want to fight against into our homes and bedrooms and friendships through movies and I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that 100% of movies is wrong or that it's evil. But anything that your heart desires can be found on YouTube, the internet, by downloading or watching a movie. Anything your heart desires, why play with fire? I believe that every day the devil tempts hearts and leads them astray through YouTube and other media outlooks like Netflix and other online movie streaming services. You can innocently be searching for something wholesome and instantly be tempted by 30 pop-ups that are quick and easy and sinful to watch. Media is not the only source of struggle for young ladies. It tends to be overlooked or misunderstood that many of most women are not visual people too. The way a man dresses does matter. It shows his heart, just as the attire of a woman can show the in intentions of her heart. And if you've not thought about it before, please think about it now. As a young man, are you trying to keep your body secret as much as you expect that from young ladies? Men cannot dismiss the fact that women can identify with their struggle because they've been told so that their primary gate to sexual stimulation is non-visual. I don't believe that for a minute. You got Mennonite girls going to the beach and they're sitting there looking at these guys. They call them hunks and, and they're ripped. and all. There's something wrong there. Women are not free from visual stimulation. Men, you must be sensitive about your appearance too in dress and conduct. Women cannot overlook men's struggle. We must all remember that modesty in dress and conduct and speech and the things that we feed on for our spiritual man. 
men must realize, and I have a few points here, that women have lust and desire struggles too. Women are visual too. Don't fool yourself. It has been preached and promoted far too long that it's a guy thing. That simply isn't true. A young lady will have deeper respect for a guy if she witnesses him guarding his eyes. I had a couple working for me a few years ago, and it was a husband and wife, and the, the man from Select Sires came, and he wanted to look at some heifers. And we had to cross through a barbed wire fence. And this man is not Anabaptist by any stretch of the imagination. And this couple that was working for me was from the West Coast. Pretty liberal and pretty lewd. They were used to that. And so when she went to cross through the barbed wire fence, this man from Select Sires turned and looked the other way. And she was flabbergasted. She says, nobody does that where I come from. But he respected her perchance that she would be immodest while crossing the fence. There is something so attractive about a guy that guards his eyes. It makes a girl feel safe and secure. It makes her feel valued far beyond her body. And when a man talks to a poorly dressed woman and has the strength to look her only in the eye, a girl's respect deepens. This is, there is nothing lastingly attractive about a man that is undisciplined and lustful. And now to the women. <clears throat> if you expect the guys to guard your eyes, you must guard yours, and most ladies have a huge and healthy imagination too. You are not alone. God made you female. He made you beautiful and attractive to those of the opposite gender. No, your brain isn't messed up if you desire romance and companionship. God made you that way. There are some women who cannot grasp or understand the power that they have over a young man. A godly lady instills within a man the desire to be better than he can be and helps him fight and walk for the moral high road. It will be a long, lifelong, and constant battle to cultivate dedicated hearts that refuse to relax in the area of personal purity. We must dismiss thoughts when they come to our mind, when they, <clears throat> where we won't go in real life to think about it in sin as well. All of these things become cyanide in our clear water. We must recognize that most media that comes through the eye gate is the devil's workshop. Lust is sin. It may be very common, but that doesn't make it okay. Just because our peers or church leaders don't know doesn't make it okay either. God sees, he knows, he cares. He is a just God that will judge our thoughts and actions and motives. God desires to see us walk in victory. He will help us. And finally, sexual intimacy is a beautiful thing designed by God, but only in the confines of marriage. Ever since the Garden of Eden, the devil has been hard at work finding ways to pervert it 
and make it shameful and dirty. I'm not a big fan of movies in general. And so why is it, Why are you telling me all this? You know, I'm guessing that you all have standards in your all's church where you encourage people what and not, and we do as well. I work and teach young people, and it don't matter if you're a Weaverland conference or out here in this conference. Anybody with a smartphone or an internet connection or goes to any public place is going to have to fight that battle. It's out there. Like I said, I'm not a big fan of movies in general. I can and have enjoyed an educational documentary. But again, with discernment, discretion. I do not personally have time to watch movies. And I would hope that I would not watch movies if I did have time. So why do people watch movies? Why do conservative Christian Anna's Baptist people seem to be so addicted to them? You say, well, a movie is just a movie. It's more than that. It's a method of shaping society and your worldview. It provides thought processes and behaviors that blur the distinctions between real life and the imaginary and make-believe experiences. It creates a false sense of reality, and it replaces God in your decision-making process. A culture of movie-watching has developed among young Anabaptist people. I told you that. And movies are shaping and impacting their young lives in a way that is not godly. Watching movies has become a way to take a break from life, and it allows the screen, both large or the small one on your phone, to present its version of life. It allows the watcher to disengage from life and its difficulties and allows us to experience a wide range of experiences and emotions. It meets people at all levels of arousal. It engages them with sinful and emotional images that burn into our minds. And those images create a separate reality in their mind. Why do we have such a culture in America towards violence? Just today, a man was sentenced in South Carolina for killing his wife and son to cover up his double life. You don't get that way in a day. And people, there's all kinds of perversion. They learn it through the media. They don't learn it from mom and dad, and they probably don't learn it at school. Most of it comes from their impressions and the pressures put on them from the media. I'm just going to give you a little list here of why I think that you should not foster a habit of watching movies. Something that moves across the screen is not wrong. It can be educational. and um, That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just plugging out and checking out and killing two hours to be entertained, to check out of life, float along, let your guard down. One, <clears throat> there's a lack of spiritual discernment. There's a lack of discretion. 
you become desensitized to modesty, to immorality, to violence, to vile behaviors, to vile language, and violation of biblical teaching. I got that list from Brother Frank Reed. It is easy after absorbing enough of this stuff that normal sin becomes normal. And that's too high of a price to pay for an hour of escape when the stresses of life are on us or we feel like we owe it to ourselves to kick back and relax. The liberal worldly agenda has been attacking the foundations of society for many years. I saw that there's a woman in a school board in Arizona that's got a petition and it's gathering steam that nobody from this Christian college next door, no student teachers can come practice there and the school board should not hire any teachers from that Christian college because they are not pro-LGBT and all these other messed up sexual arrangements and they believe in one man and one wife and it's kind of scary. You think, well, that's in Arizona, but it may be closer than we think. Are there some good movies? Certainly. They're not all in that category. But user discretion is critical, and it will not always be present. Little by little, the movie-watching habit grows until, you be, until discernment is dulled and discretion is numb and sin can take place. Movies create an unchristian worldview. It's not just a movie. It's Hollywood imprinting your mind. Hollywood is out to shape our society and not in a godly way. You cannot have Hollywood speaking to you on one side and the word of God on the other. It's a choice. You can't have it both ways. Psalm 101.3 is a familiar verse. I will set no evil thing before my eyes. Well, I want to go back to something encouraging and uh, talk about the living water. You know the story of this good, uh, the, the lady at the well. You read that this evening. And Jesus said, I will give you of the water of life. And he explained to her how she can be delivered from all the sinfulness in her life and the illicit relationships. And finally she says, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, and then I don't have to come here and draw anymore. Jesus in these verses confirmed that he alone is the source of our spiritual water, not Islam, not Buddha, or all the sacred cows in India, which is Hinduism. Salvation is found by no other way. There's no other name under heaven given to man whereby we must be saved, Acts 4.12. And so you can be very sure that any time that men teach another way or believe that it's possible to have eternal life through cyanide-laced water, that sprawling spring of life from God with cyanide in it. That's not true. 
time is coming when there'll be more and more tainted water. We need to be vigilant. We need to be on our toes and aware and protect those that we're responsible for in a spiritual way. We have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. I'm not going to take the time to read it. You know how it was. The beggar, he ate the scraps and the crumbs that fell off the rich man's table. And the rich man, he was doing really good. But you know, one day he died. The poor man died too. And the rich man was having a conversation with Abraham. And he says, wouldn't you please send someone with a little bit of water to cool my tongue? Several years ago, we was in Nicaragua to visit our one son. And Grace and I took his then-girlfriend, it's his wife now, and her dad went along. If you ever go to the southwest coast of Nicaragua in February, it is the hottest place. And it's hot where we live, but it's humid. They have a rainy season and a dry season. On the southwest coast, they call it the dry coast. It blows hot wind day after day after day. And just ask Delmer Martin when he comes back. We were sitting in church one day, and I don't understand Spanish. I don't under, I wasn't being disrespectful, but I didn't I didn't get a word they were talking. And my mind was not drawn to the message. I'm embarrassed, but it wasn't. But my mind was wandering, and I kept seeing a tall glass bottle of Coca-Cola with beads of sweat running down the side off of the bottle and making a puddle on the table. And there was these little fizzy bubbles dancing up the neck of the bottle and collecting in a small ring of foam at the top. And the soda as they sizzled and danced and sparkled their way out into thin air. I was so thirsty. But rest assured, there will be no cold sodas in hell. There won't be any water either. 2 Corinthians 6.2 For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted. In the day of salvation have I succored thee or favored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. No one is going to force you to live for God while we live in what is called time. But the scriptures tell us and are full of invitations calling us to Christ and the living water now while there is time. Jesus said in a loud voice in John 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow out of him. In 1923-29, President Calvin Coolidge was a congressman. And then he was a, the vice president. And, of course, the vice president presides over the Senate. And one day, a senator came up to him. This was 100 years ago. And angrily told Mr. Coolidge to go straight to hell. No, one senator told another to go straight to hell. 
And we said, that's terrible. And so this senator, he, he was offended and he complained. And so he went to Mr. Coolidge, who was overseeing the Senate floor. And he complained about what this man had called him. He called him a name and told him what he did. And Mr. Coolidge looked up from a book that he'd been listening, leafing through while listening to the debate. And he says this, I've been looking through the rule book, he said, and you don't have to go. I want to tell you this evening that you don't have to go to hell either. There's living water, lots of it. For all of us, there's no short supply. We are free to make our choices, but we are not free from the consequences of those choices. I fly a lot, not by choice, but I need to go places to preach and to teach and often have to go on an airplane. And perhaps many of you have flown. How many of you all listen to that lady stands up in front of the plane and gives you instructions and warnings how to be saved should calamity befall the plane? Are you there reading your book and checking your emails and sending off those last texts getting your pillow comfortable. You're just ignoring that woman. You know what I mean? You fly. You pay attention to that woman, Philip? No, we don't pay no attention to her. You know, she buckles her seatbelt. Did you check yours? When she puts that oxygen mask on her face, did you look up and see where yours was if you needed it? And did you look where the exit door was in case she you needed to get out of there. And then she points to the lights along the bottom that lead to the exit doors. Not, we're not paying her any attention. Almost nobody listens to those women. She knows it. Preachers know it too. They know when nobody's listening to them. She's just like Noah preaching in the day of the flood. No response. What if she would say, you'd better listen to me. One mishap on this plane will become a flaming flying coffin. And perhaps she'd get a doll and soak it in gasoline and put it on a stick and walk up and down through the cabin with this thing burning. And she'd snatch your tablet and your cell phone and stick them in her pocket. And then she'd put on the screen there on the back of your seat pictures of people clawing at the wall trying to find the exit door with all that smoke. She'd probably get fired, but she'd have your attention. And she would be warning you just like I'm trying to warn you tonight. Beware of cyanide-laced water. I don't care where you get it. You get it from some fly-by-night preacher, if you get it from the movies, or where you get it from books or podcasts. There's only one source. I'm pleading with you. Make sure it's the cool living water that comes from the Savior.